Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 7, Episode 25. Last week, I covered the Gabalites and the associated city of Byblos, Lebanon. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm pressing forward in the book of Joshua. And with that, let's get started. I've been covering the new places found in the first paragraph of Joshua 13 for several weeks now, and it's finally time to hit the accelerator. The rest of the chapter includes a few new places, but also makes mention of many I've already covered. The first of these already covered are Bel Gad in the podcast Chapter 7, Episode 14, Lebo Helmuth in Chapter 5, Episode 8, and Misripoth Mame in the same episode as Bel Gad, 7.14. The next couple chapters in Joshua are the delineations of the boundaries between the tribes as well as the external kingdoms. Most of these places have been covered too. Places like Aroer, Dibon, and Bashan. Instead of touching on the few that I haven't previously mentioned, I'll skip them for now. The more pertinent ones will come up later in the text. As for the rest, in the vast majority of these few, they are either never mentioned again or not enough is known about them to warrant any sort of time. One new place is Mahanaim. It's actually not exactly new, as it was mentioned in Genesis 32, in the part of the narrative about Jacob. This was just after Jacob made peace with his father-in-law Laban. There it reads, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. The footnote in the New Revised Standard Version, along with the NIV, tells us that Mahanaim translates to two camps. The context of the larger passage leads us to think it's between Paden Aram and southern Canaan, as the former was where Jacob started the journey, and the latter is where he was headed. Along this route, the general thought is the place was about 10 miles, 16 kilometers, east of the Jordan River. Other mentions in the text place it near the Jabuk River, a tributary to the Jordan. A couple different tales have been proposed as the actual spot, but there's nothing positively identifying either. As for the two camps reference, shortly after his vision on angels, Jacob becomes fearful of his approaching brother Esau. In a defensive move, he divides his large family and everything traveling with them, including livestock, into two parties, sending each in slightly different directions. While they were separated, they naturally encamped in two different places, hence the name. And the reason why it may be hard to nail down a single place as where he had the dream. After Jacob left, and before the Israelites returned from Egypt, it would be one of the many places controlled by King Og of Bashan, at least until he was defeated by the Israelites in Numbers 21 and Deuteronomy 3. In Joshua, It's on the boundary of the eastern portion of the tribe of Manasseh. As for this place, we do know a little about it. Joshua later tells us that Mahanaim would be one of many Levitical cities. It was said to have great pasture lands. 
This shouldn't be a surprise, as after the defeat of kings Og and Sihon, and before the Israelites crossed the Jordan, the tribes of Gad, Rudin, and half of Manasseh received an early allotment on the east bank of the Jordan, because it was prime grazing land, and they were herders. After the final allotment and boundary setting in Joshua, Mahanaim would be controlled by Manasseh and the Levites. All of this gets me to 2 Samuel chapter 2. Just after David had been made the king of Judah, and before all the tribes were united under him, and this is where the text gets rather interesting, and where we learn how all of Israel came under David. This was just after King Saul and his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishamah were killed by the Philistines. From the text, with my usual clarifying paraphrasing, Abner, the commander of Saul's army, made Ishbel king. Ishbel was another of Saul's sons. Abner brought him over the Jordan to Mahanaim. Abner made Ishbel the king over Gilead, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, and over all Israel, at least those parts not now under David's kingship, which was mostly the tribe of Judah. At this time, Ishbel was 40 years old. He would reign for just two years. Towards the end of this period, Abner was now reporting up to King Ishbel. Abner and other servants of Ishbel left Mahanaim and traveled to Gibeon. This meant they crossed the Jordan and headed west. Gibeon was in the territory of Benjamin, so in a part of the land controlled by Ishbel. While they were in Gibeon, several of King David's servants, including Joab, met Abner and the others at a pool in Gibeon. This pool was probably a natural spring in that city. If it's the place that modern researchers think it is, it wasn't very big, perhaps 35 feet, 10 meters across. One group sat on one side of the pool, while the other sat on the other side of the pool. Abner said to Joab, Let the young men come forward and have a contest before us. Joab agreed with the proposal, and twelve from each side came forward. And this wasn't just any contest. It was a fight to the death. Each grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into the opponent's side, so they fell down together. The battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten by the servants of David. This became known as the Battle of Gibeon. Abner and the surviving men would flee the scene. And do know I'm leaving much out. You know where to find it. I'll get to that part of the text at some point in the future. The Israelites ran all night, making it back to Mahanaim before noon the next day, but not before some 360 of the men were slain. After this, there was a long war between the house of Israel and the house of David. Eventually, David's forces would win. Later, Ishbel accused Abner of some untoward behavior, and Abner defected to David's side. Joab would kill Abner at Hebron in revenge for what had occurred at the pool of Gibeon. What a web they wove. Ishbel, who didn't know that Abner had defected, learned of his death and was dismayed. 
Shortly afterward, a couple of Benjaminites set out for Mahanaim. When they arrived there around noon, they found the king resting. How they had such easy access to him was never explained, except that we're told they came inside the house as though to take wheat, and they struck the king in the stomach, then escaped. They had come into the house while he was lying on his couch in his bedchamber. They attacked him, killed him, and beheaded him. Then they took his head and traveled through the Arabah all night, bringing their trophy and presenting it to King David at Hebron. But David wasn't pleased. He had the men executed for killing a righteous man. After this, David was anointed as the king over the united Israel, with its former capital at Mahanaim, moving to Hebron. Before long, according to the text, seven years and six months later, David would capture Jerusalem and move his capital there. Later, when David was fleeing his son Absalom, he would take refuge in Mahanaim. While there, an 80-year-old wealthy man named Barzillai the Gileadite provided David with food. From there, he would gather his forces to fight his rebellious son. David was in the city when he learned of his army's victory and of the death of his son. In the Song of Solomon, a dance of Mahanaim is mentioned, at least in the NIV. But the King James and New Revised Standard Versions translate it as a dance before two armies. What this dance was is not explained. Context lost to the passage of time. And that's it for the city in the text, except for a couple of geographic references. In the outside record, there is one thing I need to mention. The 18th century French Egyptologist Gaston Maspero claimed that Mahanaim was one of the cities plundered by the Egyptian pharaoh Shishak in the 10th century BC. This is found in 1 Kings 14 and 2 Chronicles 12, though the city isn't specifically named. And that's it in the outside record, and all there is on Mahanaim. Moving along. Next up is a place named Zaphon, said to be in the territory allotted to Gad, which would place it east of the Jordan River. Besides this mention, there is another in Judges, where the men of Ephraim took up their weapons and went to the city, wanting to know why the Gadites didn't let them know they were leaving to fight the Ammonites. I guess they wanted a piece of the action. The Ephraimites were so mad they threatened to burn the city down. It truly was a strange time. The Gadites, led by Jephthah, then defeated the Ephraimites, killing 42,000 of them in a day. Embedded in this is a bit of a twisted, somewhat darkly funny story that does yield a little insight into the language from the text. The judge, Jephthah, gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. The men of Gilead defeated Ephraim. The Gileadites took the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. Whenever one of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he would say no, the Gileadites said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth for he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. 
Apparently, the Ephraimites had trouble pronouncing the letter H when it followed the letter S. There are a couple of other mentions in Job and Isaiah, both of a geographic sense, though the one in Isaiah 14 does say that the place had heights, likely meaning hills or mountains. Zaphon is thought to be the same place as Baal-Zaphon, and the Baal in this name is the Canaanite deity, frequently thought to be their storm god. Like most places associated with Baal, this one is a mountain. In this case, in the northern reaches of the territory controlled by Gad. In many cases, the name Zaphon would come to mark the direction of north in the Hebrew language. Because of this, Baal was sometimes referred to as the Lord of the North. Of course, what this meant was subject to interpretation, as each Canaanite city seemed to have their own version of Baal, and he always seemed local. Then something completely unexpected. In the 14th chapter of Exodus, in the passage when the Israelites are about to cross the Red Sea, or potentially the Sea of Reeds, they are said to have encamped near a place named Bel-Zaphon. Specifically, it reads, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp in front of Pi-Hiroth, between Migdal and the sea. In front of Bel-Zaphon, you shall camp opposite it, by the sea. What does this mean? Probably nothing more than several places shared the same name the name of the Canaanite storm deity. There's really nothing more to know about the place mentioned in Joshua, so I'll take a minute to explore this particular member of the Canaanite pantheon. This version of their bell was commonly viewed as the protector of seagoing trade, to the point that sanctuaries were constructed in his honor around the Mediterranean and apparently the Red Sea and these were constructed by both Canaanite and Phoenician adherents, which might be a bit of a stretch, more like those seeking favor. Because of this, in the numerous shrines and temples on the shores of the seas and oceans, Belzephon would become a relatively common place name. In as far-flung of places as Tyre, Carthage, and a coastal location on the present-day border of Turkey and Syria, in addition to the one found on the shores of the Red Sea. Baal, the all-encompassing Canaanite deity, was likely of a Ugaritic origin, though the form of Baal Zephon does not appear in any of their mythological texts. Instead, this form of the myth is found in other written documents, mostly in ritual guides and in letters. In these, Belzephon is differentiated from the other forms of Bel. In many cases, he was thought to be the third most powerful of their group, their version of Neptune and Poseidon, which almost aligns with those later pantheons. In Greece, Neptune, their god of the sea, was generally seen as being the third most powerful, and in Rome, Poseidon, who held sway over the same natural forces, was seen as second. Pantheons are confusing and hard to keep track of. In the case of the Canaanite deity, many of these date to well before the Exodus. The earliest of such is from about the 18th century BC. This is about when Jacob, who would later be renamed Israel, was living in Canaan, 
In this depiction of this spell, he is standing between two mountains in what's described as a smiting pose. Seems appropriate for a storm god. There are slightly later depictions that show him wearing a crown while holding a scepter. Those seeking favor would commonly leave what are known as votive stone anchors in his temples. Think of these as stone replicas of an anchor made specifically for temple use. Later, in the 14th century BC, a letter from the king of Ugarit to an undetermined Egyptian pharaoh compared this version of Baal to the Egyptian deity Amun. There's no word on how that went over, but most places with pantheons tended to do the same thing, and it wasn't generally considered to be an insult. As for this place with the name on the Red Sea, the modern American researcher Russell Garmerkin proposes that the place in Exodus is one and the same as Arsinoe, located on the Gulf of Suez. There is a Ptolemaic-era text presently found in the Cairo Museum that lists four border fortresses, the third being Migdal and Belzaphon. This seems to imply that the fortress was located on a route to the Red Sea coast, feasibly on the canal from Python to a location near Arsinoe. As for the mountain east of the Jordan, in the territory allotted to Gad, there is a 1st millennium BC Assyrian text that mentions Bel-Zaphon as the name of the mountain itself. And given that it's Assyrian, it's most likely not the same place as that found in Exodus. On top of that mountain was also Bel-Zaphon. And that's Zaphon in the last place I'll cover from Joshua chapter 13. There are no new places in chapter 14. When I said I was pressing the accelerator, I meant it. Chapter 15 mentions a place, most likely a geographic feature, known as a crab bim. The beginning of Joshua 15 describes the boundaries of the tribe of Judah, also the land contained within it. Embedded in that paragraph is the text, and their south boundary ran from the end of the Dead Sea, from the bay that faces southward, it goes out southward of the ascent of Akrabim, passes along Zen, and goes up south of Kadesh Barnea. There's more to it, but I'll just stop there. The context, specifically where it reads, of the ascent, makes it seem like Akrabim is a mountain, or a group of mountains, like a mountain range. The latter is what researchers have landed on specifically a ridge that runs from the southwestern shore of the Dead Sea. The ridge itself runs from the northeast, where it's close to the Dead Sea, to the southwest, cutting a diagonal through the wilderness of Zen. This place was first mentioned in Numbers 34, again denoting the boundary of Judah. There is one other place the name is found, in Judges 1, and the context is exactly the same. But this instance is thought to be a different place with the same name as in this passage. It was used to delineate the boundary between the tribes of Dan and Ephraim. Things like this certainly make the Old Testament harder to follow, but thankfully the theology isn't dependent on the boundaries between the tribes. And that's it in the text, which isn't surprising as it's in the desert, essentially part of the wilderness, so don't expect anything significant to happen in the region, 
or for there to be any meaningful territorial disputes about it. Fortunately, there is something interesting in the reason I'm covering it. The name, a crab realm, is thought to be a rough translation of the word scorpion, meaning the stinging arachnid. There is a real basis for this, as the region is said to be teeming with the pest. There's nothing in the outside record about the place, save a writing of Josephus, the 1st century AD Jewish-Roman historian, recorded that a crab realm was on the border between Samaria and Judea, as the southernmost part of Samaria. This writing was somewhere around 1,500 years after Joshua, and in that time, the mountain range didn't move, but political boundaries, such as those between Judea and Samaria, were constantly in flux. And that's it for a crab bim. The last place I'll cover this week is the ascent of Adumim, also found in the same paragraph of chapter 15 and related to the boundary of Judah. This place is found only twice in the entirety of the Bible, both times in Joshua, and both referring to the same boundary. It's thought the location was on or near the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, which would place it in the Judean desert, in what is today considered the West Bank. Both mentions in Joshua say it's on the south side of the stream, and this stream is thought to be the Wadi Kelt, which would place Adomim across from either Gilgal or Jelilith, perhaps both. While the exact location has never been positively identified, some think it's about halfway between Jerusalem and Jericho. As for the road between the two cities, thought to follow the ridge. That's why I'm diving into the little bit that's known about Ododim. I'll get to the why in a minute. As for the name, it's the Hebrew word for red, in this case, likely meaning the red place. The place thought to be a dunam is characterized by stones with red streaks in them. And these red streaks, like many reddish stones, are likely iron deposits. That will come in handy when the people figure out how to refine that ore. But Joshua is firmly stuck in the pre-iron age, a.k.a. the Bronze Age. So, no need for the red ore then, at least not yet. In addition to the stones, portions of the road are bordered by reddish-brown hills, limestone mixed with iron ore. All of this led to the much later crusaders referring to Adodim as the ascent of blood. More on that in a minute, too. Outside of the biblical text, the area was mentioned in the records of Egyptian pharaoh Thutmose III, who reigned between about 1479 and 1425 BC, well before Joshua. The name used in those sources was Atamil, close enough. But that isn't why I chose to cover this place. Instead, the ascent of Adumim, well, really the road that was found on it, is commonly believed to be the same road where the parable of the Good Samaritan was set. This is based on the beginning of the story as told by Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, he began, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So, to go down, a change in elevation, 
is an essential topographical feature of a place that's referred to as an ascent, ascending in one direction, going downhill in the other. Add to that that setting was on the road thought to be between the two cities, and you have as close to a positive identification as possible, especially for a parable. On this road is a place many in the region identify as the ruins of the so-called Inn of the Good Samaritan, the place where the Samaritan took the injured traveler. But there's a problem with this. The parable, like most parables, by far most likely isn't literally true, but served to illustrate a point. What is true is that the building could have existed at the time. Actually, let me rephrase. What was likely an inn was there at the time, but the story told only used the inn as a setting. Having said that, a little about these ruins. There was a Roman fort on the route, and because of the protection offered by this nearby fortification, what's known as a caravanserai was built nearby. This was an inn with a central courtyard for travelers. So, that's the end. The fort would later fall into disrepair. In the 4th century AD, placing it in the early Byzantine period, another fortress was built atop the old one. A couple of hundred years later, near this fortress, a new inn was built, again around a central courtyard. This establishment was constructed to serve Christian pilgrims, in the 5th century, a monastery known as St. George would be built in the area. When the Crusaders arrived a few hundred years later, they would build a castle on top of the ruins of the Roman fort, with most of the attributed names of the castle referring to the red rocks found in the region. After the fall and retreat of the Crusaders, the inn in the area was repurposed for Muslim pilgrims traveling from Jerusalem and the surrounding areas to Mecca. And that's it for a Mill, and a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in Joshua chapter 15. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.